You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, episode number 10. Uh, Big episode for us over in the Operator Series. Um, We have our CEO, Dhruv Saxena, and our Chief Logistics Officer, Todd Bills. I'll enter them shortly. But just as we've done the past couple weeks, we're doing a giveaway again. So whoever has the ask the most questions will win uh, the coveted Bob sweatshirt, which Nick can kind of showcase in some direction. I don't know which square he is in. There we go. Those are some hot items these days. Also, as usual, let's see where you're dialing in from. Um, so please drop it in the comments. Again, I don't know which which direction we're in. I'm over here in Orange County, California. We've got a couple people. Well, Drew and Todd can tell where they're coming in from. And Nick is in a new location. So uh, he'll be representing Raleigh. There we have Canada. We've got some Austin again, Michigan. Let's see, do we have anybody uh, over the pond in the UK like usual? LA with Brendan. I like it. New Zealand. Wow. All right, Jorge, I'm going to come visit you. I, I, I've not been to Argentina yet. Quebec. Malaysia. Wow. This is cool. Awesome. So keep, keep dropping those in there and I'll do some quick intros. Um, so again, like I mentioned, we have Drew Saxena, our CEO and co-founder of ShipBob. So all of this started in his and his fellow co-founder DeVay's brain, and now it is this living, breathing thing. So he's uh, one, you know, one of the smartest people I've worked with, extremely good at simplifying complex issues. He also is a award-winning Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. I had to drop that because he's also one of the more humble people that I've worked with, and I like to embarrass him and everybody I work with. Uh, we also have Todd Bills, our Chief Logistics Officer at ShipBob formerly at companies like Wayfair and Target, who you've definitely heard of. And, you know, I just honestly love working with somebody who's so passionate around logistics and such deep experience and managing shipping and fulfillment for one company is hard enough. I know because I've attempted that to an extent myself, but to be able to work alongside somebody who will own this for over 3,500 customers, 10 fulfillment centers and growing, three countries and growing is, uh, you know, something that I'm extremely privilege and honored to to partake in. So Drew and, and Todd, welcome. You get to join in our, our episode number 10. So to kick things off, and as usual, everybody in the chat, please throw in your questions. Uh, you can do it in the chat or the question section. We'll definitely get to you. I've got a bunch of questions. We got a bunch of questions from people who registered for the event prior. Uh, so please keep them coming. Uh, but to kick things off, Drew, I don't think everybody's heard your story on the why behind how you, why you founded ShipBob and how that mission really still persists today. Yeah, no, absolutely, I can take that one. And thank you, Casey, for the kind words and for the introduction. Yeah, now I have to manage my reputation with all the kind words you said. So uh, for, for, for everyone joining in, thank you again uh, for coming into this and spending an hour with us. So I hope that we have a good hour with your questions and, and make this as productive as we can. And so for, uh, for how we started ShipBob, so me and my co-founder, Deve, uh, you know, we grew up in India. 
and we've known each other for all our lives. Uh, so our parents were family friends, so we saw each other growing up. And we both came to the U.S. in 07 and graduated with our engineering degrees. Uh, from I went to school at Purdue. And after I graduated, and me and Deve, we were running an e-commerce business on the side uh, uh, while working our full-time jobs in Chicago. In that e-commerce operation, being engineers, we were able to automate everything as part of those operations, except the part around shipping and logistics. And so being in Chicago, we would basically run to the post office at the Willis Tower or the CS Tower here in Chicago and stand in line at the post office to pack and ship out our e-commerce orders out. And being lazy engineers, we wanted to automate that part of our business as well. So it's sort of like, you know, figured out. And we realized that most existing solutions out there uh, were simply not willing to work with us because we were too small for them. And so that got us thinking as to how do other e-commerce businesses figure out their part of logistics and realize like there's a massive need from other direct-to-consumer brands as well for that part of it. And so that got us thinking and we got, uh, we applied to Y Combinator with this idea that uh, starting an e-commerce brand has never been easier in the history of internet. And that should result in this explosion of direct-to-consumer brands coming online for the very first time. And this ecosystem of applications and companies exists to make that happen. And But there's a void in the shipping and logistics piece of it. And so we want to be the de facto standard of shipping and logistics for direct-to-consumer brands, just like how um, Shopify, BigCommerce, WooCommerce are the go-to apps for being for starting a storefront. And Stripe is the de facto standard for being your credit card processing. Uh, we want to be the de facto standard uh, for shipping and logistics. And so that's how we got started with two people. Jifco, a third co-founder, started early with us as a summer intern in a small apartment in late 2014. And, and that's really been the journey so far. Actually, something you mentioned there that I want to touch on, which was a question we got from a lot of people prior. And then, Sean, I saw your question. Yes, we integrate directly with Shopify. We have well over 1,000 uh, customers that utilize Shopify plus ShipBob. So here's a question from Thomas, Elena, Charles, and quite a few others. And, and Drew, you mentioned this around startups um, and how mm -hmm. company people would not work with you prior. So is ShipBob startup friendly for newer brands? And then if you could talk through why that's still important for you today as we've become a much larger company than you know we were six years ago. So yes, uh, the short answer is, of course, uh, ShipBob is built on their foundations that we should be able to work with brands of all sizes from the smallest of the small uh, all the way up to if you're a 50, 60, $70 million company, uh, ShipBob is built to cater to the entire spectrum of it. And the reason why we are able to do it is we uh, have approached logistics, which is traditionally, traditionally been a very service-oriented business with a product lens to it. And so what we want to do is productize as much as of logistics as possible which means that when if you're a small brand just getting off the ground, you can sign up on a merchant application and you can go through all the steps of getting started without having to speak to a human being. And so that allows us to keep our costs low, but it still provides you with the ability to have the same infrastructure network that the 60, 70 million brands have on ShipBot. And so for us, if we are successful in our mission, we would have democratized logistics for all brands, regardless of their size. And that's truly what, you know, I think what keeps us really, really busy and what keeps us excited is this mission that we are on is that brands should not have to build this infrastructure for themselves. 
like the what Amazons and the Walmarts and the big boys have built for themselves. Our goal is to democratize access to it so that now we can create thousands of brands uh, instead of just limiting it to, you know, limiting our infrastructure to just the 50, 100, 200 brands. Love that. I know that's one of the reasons why, you know, I very enthusiastically joined ShipBob and it's democratizing that fulfillment because it is difficult for brands, whether they're doing 100 shipments a month or 100,000 shipments a month, you know, they need to provide that Amazon level logistics experience. So we're getting a bunch of good questions in the chat. I love this. Just like last week, we got sidetracked really quickly and got into the chat from all the questions where I didn't get to really any time. Last week, we also had uh, one of our speakers open things up by playing her violin. So we didn't bring that this time, but that's all right. So Todd, I have a question for you, and then I want to jump into some of these questions in the sidebar. So somebody who, you know, for 20 plus years has led large logistics teams and orgs across, you know, companies, again, like Wayfair and Target, from your perspective, what are the benefits for a merchant of utilizing a distributed fulfillment network like ShipBob? And if companies are looking to do some of this themselves, what do you think are some of like the traps or pitfalls that they should look to avoid? Great question. And, and first of all, thanks, uh, Casey, for all the wonderful words. I think so. the nicest things you've said to me in 19 months. So I hope somebody's recording this. <laughs> the, mic, the mic's on. So yeah, uh, yeah so there we go. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a great question. I, I think when you look at, uh, you know, really multiple sites or spoken wheel uh, and hub uh, kind of fulfillment, it really it gives you a couple benefits. One, you're able to uh, increase your footprint across and actually service more regions of the country for less cost. And you're actually, uh, there's a little bit more of a cost to actually duplicate inventory in different fulfillment centers. However, if you uh, continue, if you look at the instant gratification society that we live in now, you're able to actually now reduce your shipping costs and your fulfillment costs, be able to get things into a, a better price range uh, by skipping zones, by being closer to your merchants uh, and your end customers. I think it also allows you, uh, you know, some contingency planning and redundancy as you build these, to basically so not one center can go down. And if you kind of look at the world today and what's going on, each individual state was faced with different challenges through the COVID situation. You actually watch uh, folks that were relying on one fulfillment center in one part of the country actually watch their businesses basically you know, be put on hold or actually disappear, the, the ability to get to their customers. So I think it gives you redundancy. I think it allows you to save costs a little bit more when it, uh, in inventory, but I think it's more now it, it, way outweighed by the fact that you're going to save costs. You're actually going to be able to service your end customer better. I think some of the when you look at creating things on your own, over the course of the years, one of the things is people don't realize how actually expensive it is to put infrastructure in place. And when you start thinking about, you know, you're fulfilling, you know, a small, medium-sized business that, you know, I used to have a, a small business that we did it out of my garage. Uh, and then you start looking and you grow and you grow and you start looking at racking, you start looking at infrastructure, the equipment that you have to put in. And, and then you also look at that every time you scale, not only are you replicating those costs, you're now adding to those costs by a certain amount of factor just to be able to, to get to a certain point to fulfill orders. And what really happens is you don't take into account the, what it's going to cost you to continue to gain that operational leverage from your fixed costs. So, you know, let's say you're going to go spend fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 in a new fulfillment space per month, and you're going to try to get 100 to 1,000 orders out. One of the things I think people, when they start that, that infrastructure is they don't realize whether that volume and how efficient do you have to be to actually start paying back and actually gain that operational leverage. And I, and I think that's just sometimes people miscalculate what it's going to cost them to try and do it on their own or actually put the money into the infrastructure themselves. Thank you, Todd. And uh, there's a bunch of questions. I'm going to jump to a couple that I can answer really quickly. So from Sushil, when will Kilkenny, which is in Ireland, hub go live? It's live already. So we're ready to go. Just reach out to us. From Martin, do you have fulfillment in the UK? And so 
without me hopefully offending people in the UK or England or Great Britain, because I know that the mismatch of what's included is, as an American, I sometimes uh, mistake, but we do not have a fulfillment center in the UK. We have one in Ireland, not Northern Ireland, but we can fulfill within the UK. We ship there all the time, uh, so we can help there as well. And then with John, you're a new startup, and you said that you have 400 orders a month, 50 SKUs, but for a quote, the min- you said the, the minimum is 400, I'm sorry. We can work with you. We have a full self-service program where you don't need to pay the implementation fee. You can take care of everything yourself. You get 100% access to our fulfillment centers, all of our software, our merchant care support. And so we, we bring on probably, I'd say a third to 50% in any given month of our customers actually go through the full self-service onboarding process. And so you can get up and running very quickly. Uh, but let's jump to some questions at the top because I don't want to miss those. So this is a great question from Constant. He actually, uh, there are two good questions from him that I'll include. So one is, and Drew and Todd, feel free to for either yep. of you to jump in. What are the biggest challenges for ShipBob right now, and what are you doing to address that challenge? Maybe Todd, you can take this one, uh, but I was going to speak around the COVID and the hiring. But I think you have the subject matter expertise on this one. Yeah, I think I think the big challenge that we faced over the last ten weeks is really the the COVID situation and reacting and be and actually being very proactive. We, you know, I think when you look at where we were at as a company, we were actually able and still are. We're we're open, and all ten of our sites have have been open since the beginning of this. We started really at the end of February, planning and and trying to understand what we could do. We with one mission in mind, which was first and foremost keep our team safe and make our buildings safe. And so we started on that premise, and then did our. Uh, business continuation planning. I think that's been our biggest challenge. We've been in full PP&E gear, uh, personal protective equipment for almost eight, nine weeks now. We have uh, you know, heightened cleaning. Uh, we re- we, we uh, cut off all the visitors. Uh, we basically remember any contractor, any company that's dropping off inventory. Uh, we're actually requiring PPE equipment before they actually come into our yards. They're not allowed into the building. And so we've done those things. I think that's our, been our biggest challenge. What's been interesting, just a side note, is during this time, we've actually grown and expanded. And, you know, if you look at where we're at, we've actually are put our volumes have continued to increase each week. Uh, we've been able to really, even in this economy, we've been able to hire over 150 people in the last six weeks. We've got another hundred. We're going to hire in the next two to three weeks. We're opening up new shifts. We're opening up expanded capabilities in our FCs and including our, our SFN network. Uh, so I think it's been a biggest challenge to be able to m- maneuver through that. But I also think it's been a great testing and proving ground to our model of the small, medium-sized business and and literally the, how we can thrive and adapt and continue to grow even in these challenging times. Thanks for that. And so here's another question from Constant. If either of you want to answer it, and I guess it depends on part of our definition of the question. So which is our most efficient fulfillment center? I guess uh, without uh, like those, you know, we keep some of those metrics close to our chest, but I guess to frame the question, which one is the most efficient fulfillment center? We look at, you know, a metric, which I think if you are in operations and you and you know it out about these metrics, there are two things uh, which we look at. One is sort of the variable cost per order, which is in, in our source, you know, how much does it cost us to pick, pack, and ship an order out? Uh, so that variable cost per order, you know, in short, is VCPO. And so that's one metric. And the second metric is error metric, which is when our merchants, when they have an issue with the with any of their orders, um, they can email our support team at support at shipbub.com and a case gets registered. And then we tie back to which fulfillment center was that order shipped from. And so those are the two metrics, you know, that help us decide how those fulfillment centers are going. 
and it's because we are all part of the same network it's less important as to whether you know one particular fc is doing better than the other but what is more relevant is what are the trends line looking like and if any one particular fc is doing something which is outperforming in any one of those two metrics what can we learn from them and help make the entire network better and both of those metrics are very relevant for a merchant base because as we get more productive in our fulfillment centers or as the vcpo variable cost per order goes down that means our operating costs go down and those benefits can then be served back up to our merchants and so think of it as a network effect which is as shipbox scales as our volume grows uh, we are able to you know make all of our operations the associates and our shipping operations more productive and we can then take all of those uh, you know benefits and then accrue them back to us as a company and accrue them back to the merchants and those also reflect back in our software where all of those error metrics that we track allow us to then build out processes inside our operating software our warehouse management software which then help us reduce our error rate so i don't think a lot of people realize but our merchants have the merchant facing application uh, which they log into but shipbox software stack extends far below that as well so we actually have written our own warehouse management software which sort of takes all of that decision making which needs to happen at a network level and then sort of um, you know allocates tasks to our fulfillment centers so because we own the full stack uh, we are able to make the merchant experience a lot better compared to like uh, standard 3pls who are who don't own and operate their own warehouse management software as well so i guess that was a long answer to you know how we track those metrics we won't disclose like which one's the best at fulfillment center but those metri- but our fulfillment centers are very are probably very very world class I'm glad you touched on the full stack aspect as well. And and Annie, I know you had a question on which metrics we track the most. So I hopefully hopefully that answers your question. And from the warehouse management system or software that we utilize as well, that way, you know, depending on the customers that we see coming in from how we receive products to how we store to how we ship them out to how we do batch pick depending on the type of customer. This way we have full control over iterating on that which we do across, you know, that entire let's say the the life of the package every single day and that's that's one of the many ways that we look to get efficiency gains which then again can help you all with with your costs and hopefully with shipping speeds again from like receiving to the output as well so here's a question from Walid what's the reason you limit the number of SKUs that a customer can have and you guys get paid for storage fees regardless right i think one of the things when when we- at um, how to continue to be very, very efficient for our merchants and and continue to actually generate leverage. Uh, We also realize that there are things that, you know, when you get into those higher SKU functions, uh, you're getting over the 500 based on the order count where you become even more efficient and and actually cost more to be able to provide the service. We also realize that the more SKUs that you put in and that we we take sometimes doesn't necessarily fit within our model and our bucket that we've actually built our infrastructure for. Doesn't mean necessarily that we're not going to continue to look to expand that kind of window or that box that we look at. But we also know that based on the model, as Drew mentioned, for each of our FCs, we've built an operational infrastructure that allows us realistically before COVID to actually fulfill orders same day, allows us to do as uh, the processes all that Casey mentioned, you know, they're all standardized and be able to help us really be efficient to get you same day fulfillment of your orders. But one of the things we also look at when you get into those higher different SKUs, you know, it does it does take up uh, operation, or, you know, I would say shelf space, different infrastructure 
infrastructure that we need to put in together. And our, our really our goal is to be able to continue to help control our costs, our infrastructure costs, to provide a better fulfillment service and a full stack. Uh, so we, we actually know where we play very, very well. We also know where we where we struggle and we're very honest with that. And, and we try to be upfront with our merchants. And, you know, I've been on numerous calls before with merchants as they're implementing or onboarding or potentially looking at us. And, and we're very fair and transparent to say, these are things that work really well. Here's some things that are challenges, but more importantly, here's also some suggestions based on things that we've done in the industry where we think maybe we could help you or find maybe a partner that could help you with something, whether it's a, some specialized kitting or you have, you know, let's say 2000 SKUs that you're trying to keep track of and keep inventory control or barcoding. You know, I, so I guess to be fair, the question is we know where we play really, really well. Uh, we know where we can be cost effective. We know that we're really good at that. And then we're also very transparent to say there's, these are things when we start expanding those SKUs that maybe we're not necessarily good at it right now, and but we're continuing to evolve that. So I hope that answered the question. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you called out just how our box continues to expand as well, because that benefits, I know, a lot of our customers as well as they continue to evolve their businesses. So something to call out there, it's some areas that we've looked to expand on over the last six months and really over the last year. So we obviously have called out, we now have a fulfillment center in Canada and Europe, and that came from direct feedback from our customer base. But then also items like B2B, and returns, and I know there's a question on returns, which we can address in a minute, to things like oversized and heavyweight to fragile. And so these boxes will continue to expand. And as your business continues to expand, this is where we want the customer feedback so we can identify areas of opportunity for us to continue to support you as, as your businesses evolve as well. So again, I mentioned again, Canada and Europe. Uh, we have a question here from Sean. When will you have a fulfillment center in Western Canada, like Calgary or Vancouver? And if I can add a little bit onto that as well, I know that we have plans in the next couple months and couple quarters to continue to expand the locations that we identify. And so, Drew or Todd, if you want to talk about, again, Western Canada expansion and maybe some other areas where we might look to, to open. So, I'll, again, I'll give you a long answer to it because I, the way that we think about adding locations is really looking at our existing you know, where are, where are the packages in our network uh, traveling to? So, and, and at this scale, we have a pretty good sample size. And that sort of informs our decision. If we were to place a network node in that particular location, would we be able to reduce the zones that, the, that this percentage of packages will be traveling to? So uh, if you guys are not familiar with zones, effectively what that means is if I can uh, place our customers or our merchants inventory closest to their end customer's uh, address, then those packages will travel shorter distances and it will ultimately be cheaper and faster for our merchant. And so what we so effectively as a merchant, your goal is to reduce the number of zones that your packages travel to so that you can reduce your fulfillment costs. And to do that, you have to distribute your inventory across the network of domestically within the US or internationally. And so for us right now, you know, Western Canada um, is, a, again, we, we look at all of those factors around um, you know, how many packages are traveling to that particular part of the country and therefore making a decision on whether we need a network node there or not. And it hasn't been proven out as yet that that is the highest in that list, in that sorted list of locations that we must get to. But I think that is something that we can, um, you know, that of course, as we build out more locations, that would be something that we can definitely consider. But right now our focus is more on the on the Seattle side because we are missing a location there. That if we were to put a location there domestically, would that reduce the, the zones for a large portion of our shipments? And perfect, because then you answered Sean's next question, which was, or a fulfillment center in the Northwest like Seattle. Yep. So perfect. Yep. 
Yeah, it, it won't exactly be Seattle, but in that vicinity. Yeah. And then I'll jump to actually Annie's question real quick, which I can answer. So do you handle returns? Short answer is yes. And then do you integrate with returns management processes and applications? And so, uh, yeah, so we recently launched integrations with both Happy Returns and Returnly. And so those are both, you know, industry leading solutions. Feel free to message us. I always drop my email, crmstrong at shipbob.com if you have any questions. But, you know, happy to discuss yep. those as well. And so, Todd, this might be, well, Drew, I'm sure you know the answer too, but Todd, this might be a great question for you. So from Rachel, are you licensed in the U.S., state or federal level to fulfill non-prescription medications in accordance to the Drug Supply Chain Securities Act? And if so, can we access documentation that asserts that? Great question. A long-winded question because it's dealing with the government in all cases. So we actually are licensed by the FDA to be able to handle certain types of, of, of non-prescription medication. I think it, I, the, the fairest answer is to basically say it just depends on what the actual product is. Uh, one of the things that we do as you as you come through, we actually have the, all of our FDA documentations, our licenses that we're, we're happy to, to share with that with our merchants uh, if they need those numbers as they're trying to get uh, authorization to be able to ship these. What we do is we actually evaluate each product as it comes in, and then we actually work with our contacts through the FDA and actually verify through our not only our vetting system, but also our carrier system to be able to make sure that we're licensed accordingly uh, to be able to ship that. So there are certain things in the supplements, you know, some of the the, you know, the health and beauty that is uh, you know non-prescription that, uh, for uh, homeopathic medicines and different things like that that we actually do have on the ship. But we just the fairest answer is to say we just have to we have to look at the actual individual product, evaluate it against the regulations and our licenses, uh, and then we'd be more than happy to uh, share that with you. Great. And so here's a question from Jonathan: What U.S. Fulfillment Center, do you recommend for a start? My customers are coming from all over the country. So oftentimes, depending on how long you've been operating for, we can do a time and transit analysis, which essentially means we look at your historical volume and identify which center or centers are best for your business. And with ShipBob as well, it continues to look at this over time. And we do have an analytics dashboard within our product that can allow you to see what are the cost savings if I shift my inventory from one fulfillment center to another, or if I expand the amount of fulfillment centers I have? But to answer your question more broadly without me seeing the data, we do have locations in Illinois and Texas, which are more centrally located, which often allow you to reach a vast majority of the country rather effectively. And so again, without me seeing your data, those, you know, one of those locations would likely be best, but you know, we, could, we could definitely dig into your business there as well. And so here's a question from Chris. I'll ignore how he unprofessionally opened it, but what does the 500 SKU limit do? What's the difference between 10 merchants that have 50 SKUs versus one customer that have 500 SKUs if the order volume is there? I'll take that one. And I think, uh, yeah, Todd uh, spoke to it. Uh, but effectively, you know, uh, think of uh, operations as a pretty complex business where you have to build capabilities which work for a certain type of merchants. So I think there was a reference to Amazon too. So think of Amazon in its early days, they started off with books because they wanted to make sure that their operational processes and the infrastructure is built out correctly to handle books. And once they had that down, they went into you know music and, and CDs and then slowly and steadily expanded into other verticals. And so for us, even our mission is unchanged. We want to keep democratizing logistics for everyone. But it would be unfair for us to target the entire market and say we want to be the one-stop shop for everything. 
like that would end up meaning that we would do a pretty poor job on everyone because we would be good enough uh, for everything. So our goal is, can we perfect uh, our, our operations, our physical infrastructure and our software infrastructure for a particular set of merchants? And what we've realized that if your SKU count is over a certain threshold, our product, which is a merchant application, like the amount of page, the loading on those on the on the page to load all of those SKUs, the physical infrastructure of storing those physical those 500 unique items, and then having the picking carts, which are the actual pickers, which go inside the fulfillment centers to pick your orders out, like the amount of travel that they would have to work with, like that would simply not be something that our VCPO, or which is the what I explained before, that we won't be able to sustain it. And so what is that? Uh, so hence, for us, we are trying to limit the box, but still be able to service a ma large majority of the of the market. And as our capabilities expand, we can keep opening the box. And if you if you think in the last one year, like there was a question or two about returns in this early half of the year, we built out this entire returns infrastructure from the merchant application to the warehouse operating software. And so for us, the you know what what we spend our time on our product engineering and operations is what is the next set of capabilities that we really want to perfect. And every time we build something because we own the entire stack that sort of benefits our, our existing set of merchants because now they can do something more, but it also expands our addressable market as well. And so company building, or especially in, which are in a business like ours, which is not pure software, is an exercise of sequencing where we have to get each part of it right. And if you try to run before perfecting, you'll you'll falter. And and you know if we falter, we are putting at risk thousands of merchants who depend on us every single day to get it right. And we always don't get it right. But our job is to get it right more often than not. And hence, it's sometimes frustrating because it feels like we are moving a little slowly. But we realize that every one of our merchants depends so heavily on us on getting it right every single time. So we want to we want to acknowledge that responsibility and get it right. And hence. We focus very heavily on the merchants that we know that we can get it right more often. You made a comment there that I want to highlight as well, which is not only are we looking to, again, democratize this for as many potential sellers as possible, but we need to make sure the decisions that we make are also benefiting our existing customers. Because we can't just keep looking to expand the box to allow more people to work with us. We need to make sure that we take care of and help our current customers grow as efficiently and quickly as possible as well. So here's a question from Jennifer. What about handling exchanges as part of the return? So I know for a fact that Happy Returns has exchanges built into their software as well. And again, Happy Returns plus ShipBob, direct integration in both directions. And so that could be a great solution for your business. Here's a question. There's two more about fulfillment center expansion or FC expansion. So apologize to, apologies to Thibaut or Thibaut. My, my French is, uh, skills are at zero. But he says, or I believe he, no, we have no good 3PL targeted to brand owners in France, which is your home country. I'm really happy to know you have location in Ireland. Any plans to expand to France, Germany, Spain, Italy? And then I'm going to add another question onto that. So I know that we have been looking at um, mainland Europe as, as a potential opportunity, you know, let's say later this year, 2021. And then from Sushil, any plans to open a fulfillment center in the Far East to cover pan-Asian markets? And so Drew spoke about how we think about expanding into different opportunities. But Drew, do you want to touch on either of those locations? Yeah, no, that's a lot of locations. And yeah, no, I think that, you know, our rationale on opening up locations is built around, you know, where is the most amount of density of orders uh, traveling to? And if you open up a location, that's, does that help us reduce the fulfillment cost for our merchants? Like that's sort of the the rationale on opening more locations. So as as we get more information, you know, we are able to refine those answers. 
And another uh, point on, on as you guys think about our next set of locations, the first four locations uh, as part of the Shipbox Fulfillment Network were owned and operated by us. And what that allowed us to do is to really build out from the ground up the physical infrastructure as well as the software infrastructure to really build you know, for, for direct-to-consumer brands. So we built all of that infrastructure up from the ground up. And the next six now, which are part of a network, are not owned by us, but they're using the same software infrastructure as well. And, be and because we have this blueprint that we've replicated four times over, we are able to use that blueprint and hand it over to these locations, which are part of a partner network, and say, hey, this is the blueprint of operating it. And this is, if you execute against it, you can still retain the same merchant experience. So that's allowed us to keep scaling our, our fulfillment network really, really quickly. And so all of the locations that, that Casey, you listed in the questions, that's how we can approach about you know, getting to those destinations faster is instead of building it from, from scratch, we already know what works. We have the blueprint and we can give it to existing 3PLs who are in those locations who may not have all of it figured out, but we do, and then have them join our network and use our software to be able to service our existing merchants as well as the new merchants. And I think that's the playbook to expand quicker uh, because we have it down. And so the first five years of our history have effectively been around building and from first principles. And the next chapter for us is actually going to be scaling, uh, which is taking all the lessons that we've learned in the first five years and scaling them out to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. Right. And so here's a, here's a very in the weeds question from Kalila. So how do we get issues resolved on individual orders in the process of being shipped, such as a customer wants to update or correct a shipping address before the order ships? Yep. Uh, so, um, so Khalila, I think um, where, if the order hasn't shipped, you should be able to go into the merchant application or into your dashboard and be able to correct that address yourself. If the order is, however, part of a, you know, once an order gets to a certain point where it is part of a operations process, then it's very hard to make those changes because now, you know, that order has moved into a fulfillment center where it's actively being worked on. So till that happens, you should be able to go in and answer and basically make all the changes you want, including changing the items, changing the address, putting it on hold. And, and that's really, you know, the reason why we've been able to scale is because uh, we want to have our merchants do all of this work on their own so they don't have to rely on the ShipBob team to take these basic steps. And another metric uh, that we track uh, to get to answer your question is we actually don't want to have you email us. We want you to be able to do it yourself. So we measure this metric called cases to an order. So case to order ratio on our customer support team, which is for every 100 orders shipped, how many cases around any topic, whether it's about operations or stores or anything, did our merchant care or support team get? And our goal on a product and engineering team is, can we keep driving that case to order ratio down? Because that means we are helping our merchants become more self-service, right? And so, so that speaks to, you know, what is the philosophy on a product engineering side? Yeah, just like you, Drew said, it, just being able to do it all yourself. I mean, that, that's, that's really the goal. And so here's another question from Maurice. We've been trying to reach an executive regarding a partnership. Nick gave my email address. So thanks for doing that, Nick. Maurice, I'll get back to you today uh, if you reach out. Question here from Tim, and this is actually a, a question that we get rather often, and it's a, a very common use case for our current customer base. So my products are manufactured in China, but sold worldwide. I'm located in the U.S. Is it better to A, import to the U.S. in bulk and fulfill from the U.S. across the world, 
or keep the fulfillment center close to the China suppliers and fulfill all around the world from China or Hong Kong? I think the the decision point uh, of where to actually, whether you're importing in the United States uh, or whether you're going to keep the fulfillment center, I, I think one of the first things you need to look at it quite honestly is how is there a value added services work that has to be accomplished to your product before it goes to an end customer? If there's any kind of kitting or different things that have to happen to assemble your end product, obviously you want to kind of you know potentially look at that doing it closer to home where the actual product is manufactured. Uh, there are advantages to actually being able to import instead of trying to do a direct fulfillment. For from overseas. Once you actually import it to the United States, you actually, as we talked about at the first of this webinar, you can actually split your inventory across the network, uh, be able to use multiple fulfillment centers and not necessarily rely on that fulfillment center uh, that is overseas to be able to try and import product in through some of the import laws. I think it really just depends on when you take a look at your financials and you take a look at your product. I, I know one of the things in my past, our biggest reason, whether at Wayfair or Target, is we actually built uh, fulfillment uh, networks on both sides of the of the ocean, so to speak. And really, it came down to what, it, what was required from a value-added service and a costing standpoint from us deciding where to put it. And, you know, the other thing I would say is the cycle of your product. If you're a smaller to medium-sized businesses, if you're having to buy in bulk, and you might not be selling through that inventory. It might pay to actually get it closer to the United States or actually import it in and be able to actually store it probably relatively cheaper, depending on where you're at uh, in Asia route, in the Pacific Rim. And, and it just gives you an advantage. You can almost use it as uh, anywhere where you're storing it as almost your uh, import center. And you're able to actually divvy inventory up throughout the course of your sales cycle or through your you know uh, sales and marketing as your uh, sales come on or you're starting to hit uh, scale in your, uh, your sales to be able to allow you to actually get inventory faster than waiting for it to be able to either go a cargo aircraft to have to be moved over, uh, whether it's going on a container ship. Uh, you, you already have it within the United States, so you can actually rely on the intermodal network to be able to get it uh, to your end customer pretty quickly. And also, I would just export your last several months of order data and see what percentage is in the US and which is overseas. I was talking to a, a prospect yesterday, and they were really excited about some of our international hubs, but about 92% of their orders were in the US. And so yes, they are shipping to, let's say, 30 plus countries around the world, but such a vast majority are in the US. It's just it's such a no-brainer for them to start within the US and then start expanding from there as well. So here's a question, again, from uh, Thibault, or again, you can tell me how to pronounce it better. My questions Thibault. concern shipping of power... Thibault, there we go. My question concerns shipping of power banks, 600 MAH and items containing lithium batteries, are they considered dangerous goods? Can we ship them through normal channels? I don't know if a subject matter expert, they keep changing the rules. Uh, but I, I think at the 600, M, 600 MAH, there are, uh, you can ship it. It's just usually limited quantities. At ShipBob, we actually do that, uh, the ORM-D, uh, Class 9 limited quantities. Uh, it really, we would have to take a look at the MSDS, see uh, what the makeup of the lithium battery is. Usually what happens is you are able to ship lithium batteries across the United States. They're usually restricted. You can't ship them air. They have to be ground only. And they're usually, there's restrictions. Each carrier is a little bit different restriction. But usually, depending on the MAH and the wattage, usually you're only doing two or less batteries in every package. And there's uh, some rules around, are they actually, is there an on-off switch in the equipment they're in? Are they being shipped within the equipment, uh, actually in the battery compartment? Are they loose? Uh, so it really just kind of depends on how the product comes. But you are able to ship them. Uh, it just depends on the MAH and the watts. And, uh, you know, we, would, we could be able to take a look at that and help you out with that. So here's a great question from Malid. This gets uh, less out of the you know, into the weeds questions. 
So Drew, what was the aha moment in the early stages of starting your business? What event instilled the belief that this is going to work? Was it a big account or what was it exactly? Yeah, well, this was uh, our third startup. And so the aha moment actually happened before uh, starting ShipBob because in all the other three companies that uh, that we were doing and we are like hobbyists, we were always trying to solve something that other people told us was their problem. But with ShipBob, because we were running an e-commerce business before, uh, we were experiencing a problem ourselves. And I think that's at least one way to start a company. And so that was sort of the genesis of the idea as well. And the aha moment happened actually, or not aha, but like it, we sort of realized that this is a problem that not only us, but several other businesses face is because we would stand in line at the post office, like I talked about at the Willis Tower. And standing in line at the post office, we there was always a line, firstly. And so that was some indication that people actually have to still do it themselves. And then we would stand outside the post office and ask people going into saying, hey, if we were to provide you with the service of actually picking and packaging and shipping your orders out, would you stop coming to the post office? And some people in a large number, I think, would say yes. And then the second question would be like, how much would you pay for a service like that uh, to have somebody do this work for you without you having to go to the post office? And the answers we would get would vary from five to 20 to $30 for every transaction. And, and so, you know, if you can validate your idea that one, that it's a big enough problem and two people are willing to pay for it, I think that's a good uh, basis to, to spend more time working towards it. I think what we underestimated was how massive the problem is and how underserved the existing solutions are in solving that problem. So I guess, you know, yeah, I think that's the piece which always surprises us is that, you know, that this is a such a massive market and then the existing solutions, like how backward they are. And so so that was, I guess, uh, long and short of the aha moment. Sorry if I didn't answer that very clearly. So, so Drew, I'm going to come back with something similar to that in one second. I want to answer some other questions really quickly. So from Todd, Todd, you have a lot of questions around returns, what it costs to receive them back. And I know some of the integrations we rolled out are newish. And so please email me directly, crmstrong at shipbob.com. We'll make sure we get everything taken care of. From Agatha, do you work with subscription box businesses? Yes, uh, we have. I'd say 30 to 40% of our largest merchants have a subscription component to their business. And so happy to help there. Again, you can email me directly as well. So Drew, now that, you know, I think people's view, of course, of ShipBob has evolved greatly over the years. You know, we're much larger. We have fulfillment centers in several continents now, uh, which I'm sure five, six years ago was, you know, a very, uh, you know, looked like at the top of Mount Everest for you. What's a funny story from the early days or maybe like a mistake that was made early on that you, you like to look and laugh on now that you can? You know, I think uh, companies get started in spite of the mistakes that people make, uh, which is like we made a whole lot of it. So we are first time entrepreneurs. Uh, we're not professional CEOs. So we, we are learning how to build companies as we go as well, just like mostly all of our merchants as they are building their brands. But if you look at um, very early on, where our fulfillment centers were located. Uh, so I'll, I'll speak to one of them, which was in Brooklyn, New York. This was on a building. We had the fifth floor of the building and you had to take an elevator, which uh, they had a freight elevator, but most of the times it wouldn't work. So you had to take a passenger elevator up the to get to the fifth floor. And when we first saw the building, uh, it was me and George, my other founder, 
and we loved the place because it was very clean and it looked nice and we thought yes this is what a fulfillment center should look like we never considered how many dog doors does it have what high how high the ceiling is and it completely like looking back at it it, it makes no sense for us to have signed a four year lease on it but we did uh, because we were young immature and ambitious and so for four years uh, our team paid the price of our of uh, incorrect decision making where every day like the DHL UPS USPS FedEx all of these people would come ride those passenger elevators multiple times uh, to make sure that all of those packages get picked up and every time uh, we would get inbound inventory i'm sure our employees there would be would curse us because <laughs> it would take them hours to get it all stocked up so that was incredibly that was a pretty egregious mistake on our end uh, to have signed uh, on a brooklyn location I love that. And it's it's really just the hunger and the ambitions, though, it gets you through it. And also, fortunately, people like Todd, who smile and patiently say, okay, well, now we can take that to the next level. And now we have a location in Pennsylvania that's like five or six times the size. So uh, yeah. I, lo- I love those stories. And, and, uh, and not on the fifth floor. So <laughs> Not yeah, on the it's, fifth floor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that was part of the interview process when I got to ride up the elevator in Brooklyn and actually go packages on, onto the fifth floor through a freight elevator that can only hold less than one pallet at a time. So yeah, I'm smiling. It was a lot of, it was a lot of fun, but we, you know, it's, it's part of the, the entrepreneurial spirit. I, I think if you look at the sites of ShipBob uh, over the last three or four years of how we've grown, taking spots that are maybe 10,000 square feet to 20,000 square feet to 25,000 square feet now to 200,000 square feet and 10 sites around the country. So even though it started with humble beginnings and a couple things that when you look at it, it just seems crazy. It's, it's been amazing how quickly we've been able to pivot and grow. So good story, Drew. <laughs> There's also some good ones of you guys wearing the uh, ship Bob sailor caps as well, but we'll save those for another day. So here's another question from, from Walid, which is, are your warehouses air conditioned? And then maybe to add on that as well, if Drew or Todd, you want to touch on some of the temp control locations that we have as well. Actually, not all, all of our actually have a forced air system so they actually uh, keep it a, a moderate temperature anywhere between 65 and, and 85. Uh, we do have actually centers in Florida and also our Grapevine uh, Texas facility uh, and a little bit of uh, area in Moreno Valley that actually is temperature controlled. It is something that is, we are looking at and I think Kelsey hit a good point as we continue to grow our network those are some of the things that we've opened that box up a little bit. We do have a lot of uh, demand for folks to do have temperature control large and oversized. Uh, so we have three sites right now that actually have temperature control and uh, foresight that actually just opened up a little while ago in Texas uh, that is actually temperature controlled as well. Awesome. And so here's a question from Annie. I should answer it really quickly. So can ShipBob identify shipping efficiencies for your merchants, such as catch two orders placed by the same consumer address and ship them together? So I'll answer the second question first. Um, I don't believe we do that now. And we just, the end consumer profile, the the occurrence of that is extremely low. And so it's not something that we have tackled to date. From the shipping efficiency perspective, like I mentioned earlier, within our analytics dashboard, it's always learning from where your shipments are um, being sent and where you're shipping from. And so we can identify which other locations should you possibly be distributing your, distributing your inventory. Also, you can look at what is the what is the average total fulfillment cost and how does that fluctuate up and down? So there might be efficiency gains from different types of packaging and stuff like that as well. And so that's just a, cu- a couple of ways that we can identify shipping efficiencies to help you both with speed and money, which is really like the core of, of ShipBob. Here's a question from Renji. And I know this is something we talk about a lot internally and 
are, will be changing, you know, updating shortly. So from Renji, can you shorten the inventory time now? It is five days from when a package comes to ship, Bob. Um, I know, you know, before coronavirus hit, it was sub one day across our entire fulfillment network. Todd, if you want to address that and talk about some of the changes that we've made in, or drew and then including, you know, we've hired nearly, or I think over now 150 associates in the last 45 days. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Todd answer the question, but I do want to shout out to Dr. Chang, the, the lady who asked, asked the question. Uh, she's been with us uh, all through, I think, the six years that we've been, out, been around. We, uh, so, Dr. Chang, I'm good, glad to see you here and hope you're doing well. And, and Todd can answer your question. Yeah, thank you. Great question. Uh, so one of the things I think uh, Casey's absolutely right. Before COVID hit, we actually were sub one day across the entire network, uh, two days at the very most, and also within our uh, same day fulfillment SLAs, uh, service level agreements. One of the things that bogged us down, uh, really, quite honestly, as we mentioned, our goal was to stay open. You know, we had a significant challenge as the states were changing the rules uh, dynamic with our staffing, childcare, obviously keeping the buildings clean, social distancing, keeping people that it really changed the way we operated. And actually, if you look at, at times, our buildings were probably operating at 30, 40% of the actual normal staff because we took it on ourselves to do the right thing uh, first and foremost to keep our team safe, uh, allow our teams to be off. If somebody didn't feel well, we actually encouraged them to stay home so we could actually just continue to keep our population safe. As you look at now, our, we've actually, as Casey mentioned, hired a ton, of, a ton of folks. We're hiring even more in the next two to three weeks. I actually, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but uh, potentially next week you'll uh, see an announcement from ShipBob, uh, at least for our receiving specifically, where we're actually going to uh, get that uh, window down a little bit. I won't give you the actual how many days it's going to reduce by, uh, but it's definitely going to go uh, definitely down from five plus two for the COVID. And we're going to try and get back into that four or five day range potentially. Um, but uh, I don't want anybody quoting me on that on a, on a, on a webinar later. But our goal, quite honestly, uh, and to be very fair, is we have focused for the last four days, five days. All of our teams work through the weekend, not only due to the outbound, we did voluntary overtime with a specific uh, goal is to try and get our inbound backlogs down into under the five-day range. Great. Thanks for that, Todd. And I know like in Drew, Drew sent out a letter to all of our customers. Um, we published it on our side as well. A core focus of ours has been making sure we can get all of the outbound orders out as quickly as possible to take care of our merchants and, and also the end consumer as well. Um, while, you know, f obviously focusing on the receiving is very important as well, but I know a, a, a huge focus has been on the outbound orders. So for the sake of time, I'm going to answer a couple other questions really quickly from Brendan, customer since 2017, doing a lot of wholesale. Brendan, I think you and I, have, we've exchanged a few emails in the past. Feel free to email me, crmstrong at shibbob.com, and then we can connect with your, your uh, merchant success manager or the customer care team, make sure we take care of your wholesale and B2B questions. Does Todd do voiceovers? He should. And he's also not wearing sunglasses, even though he does look like a total badass right now inside. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. And uh, I do have one final question that I always end with. We'll get to that in a second. But here's an interesting question that we received from a few people in advance. And then Todd, just uh, the other, uh, another Todd asked this. There's been a lot of, and, and I'm going to paraphrase greatly here. There's been a lot of talk about USPS running out of money. We obviously don't have a crystal ball. We can't predict the future. But Drew or Todd, what is your take on the situation with USPS and, and how are we approaching or monitoring the situation? So, uh, uh, Todd, uh, the question around the USPS running out of money. So, I'll, again, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to how, how, the, how we make a decision whether your packages should be shipped out using USPS or UPS or FedEx or DHL. 
And so, you know, uh, on the background, when your order comes into ShipBob, uh, label generation software, basically, it looks at the destination address and it looks at the items in the order. And then it price shops across all the different carriers to figure out what would be the best uh, shipping method, uh, ship, what, 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 which one would be the best last mile carrier option to ship that particular order out. So we're not tied exclusively to one particular carrier, but we price shop across several different carriers. And so for us, you know, um, it is on a per order level. So regardless of, I don't first, I don't think that will happen, uh, the scenario that, that is covered here, but regardless of if that happens or not, but we, we, you know, we have other carriers as well. And we like some 3PLs focus all of their efforts on like having contracts with one exclusive carrier to do all of their volume versus with us, because we have a technology layer, uh, we are able to price shop at an order level across all of these carriers. So we are constantly adding and subtracting new carriers, not only at the network level, but also at a particular zip code level. Uh, and so that optimization allows us to reduce our dependency on one particular carrier but really choose from a plethora of carriers. So even if USPS is not in that running anymore, I think you know there are local last mile carriers like OnTrack um, and several others that that will come onto our platform as their service zip code or, or their you know or their reliability improves for us to you know make them universally available across the network. That's great, thanks, Drew. And so there's a couple more questions. Again, I'm going to run through them quickly. Also, Tebow, I get to say your name properly on the first time. You do have a customer freight forwarder from Pakistan and any plans to help that in the future. That's not our business, but we do have partners there. I would look at a company like Freydos. You can contact me directly, um, but we do have a handful of partners in the in, in Flexport in the, in the freight forwarding space. From a lead, how many orders you ship a day and what's the max you ship in one day? Um, I can't give specifics there, but what I will say and what's been interesting with the coronavirus impact across e-commerce that you know typically our largest orders come in around Black Friday, Cyber Monday every year. But we've, you know, that's been surpassed day after day after day since coronavirus hit. And so it's a good time to be in e-commerce and really understanding direct consumer for all of your businesses as well. Um, from James, your model is designed to compete against Amazon FBA. What would be the advantages of ShipBob over Amazon for fulfillment? So we're not designed to compete against FBA. We're designed to help direct consumer brands do well. Sometimes people choose between us and FBA. I'd say the benefits are one, you have a person to call on the other end with somebody at ShipBob. You own all of your data. You own the relationship with your customer. From things, I know that there's another question prior of do we offer custom packaging solutions or do we offer uh, packaging for customers as well? So yes, we do have standard packaging, which comes with the total fulfillment cost. But you can also use custom packaging if you want, which I know you can't do with Amazon. You can do custom inserts and marketing material. So you really control, control everything with your customer and the data there. And so that's that's a big reason, you know, why people choose ShipBob over Amazon as well. And another thing with Amazon as well, as you saw, I think Amazon did the right thing with focusing on non-essentials. We prioritize or focusing on essentials. We prioritized essentials, but we were also still shipping out all non-essentials. And you know, we were able to work with a, a larger customer set and keep them operating during during coronavirus and this impact. And you know, who's to say that some, if something like this happens again? You know, something you have to think about with Amazon. And then another question from Walid, do you think Shopify opening fulfillment centers is going to hurt your business? So with Shopify, they're a great partner of ours. We welcome them into the space. I think they brought a lot of awareness of the importance of shipping and fulfillment, just like Amazon has. And so I think that it's, and again, they're trying to help democratize uh, direct consumer fulfillment as well. So it's, it's a great time, I think, to be in the fulfillment space. So I have one final question for Todd and Drew, because I know it's the top of the hour. But first, I want to just thank everybody 
in the audience for joining. I know your time is extremely valuable. Appreciate you guys coming here. We're here every Wednesday, 3 o'clock Eastern time. We hope we see you next week. My last question, that's my plug for the day. My last question that I always end on, what's the number one piece of advice that you have for brands today? So Drew, we'll, we'll start with you. What's your number one piece of advice for direct-to-consumer brands? Keep at it, even if it gets hard, because this is a massive space. And just like how Amazon puts it, like we are very, very early. So this is day one. So uh, so no matter if you're just getting started, you know, or you've built a big brand, keep at it. Uh, because uh, anything that you do today will set you up for success. So don't give up. Yeah, and, and I'm I, the same. I don't, almost could go ditto with uh, what Drew said. But I also think when you're looking at, at, at your supply chains and you're trying to, you know, get your product to market, it's one thing to create it and the entrepreneurial spirit to get it. Not necessarily give up, but you know, simplify uh, as you continue to you know grow your brand. Simplify the processes and the, and what it takes to actually put it together from a manufacturing to getting it to your end customer. And I think some people overcomplicate it, and really, it's uh, getting it from point A to B. There's a lot of steps that go to it, but the more you simplify it, the faster you can ramp and the faster you can scale. Love that, and I love the the stay at it, the persistence thing. I think. The first fulfillment center was uh, Drew or, or DeVay's uh, apartment. And now, you know, look at, look at ShipHub today. So it's just staying at it, staying true to your mission. So again, thank you everybody for joining us. Drew, Todd, thank you. And of course, Nick, thanks to you for putting this together every single week. So bye, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. See you all. Pleasure to meet you. Oh, thank you. Nice care. to have you. Thank you, everyone. Yeah.